Hi everyone, and welcome to Happy Paws, presented by FearFreeHappyHomes.com. Happy Paws is a podcast by pet lovers for pet lovers. We take a scientific and evidence-backed approach to helping you understand your pet on a deeper level. In this episode, we're joined by Ken Ramirez, Vice President and Chief Training Officer for Karen Pryor Clicker Training. We discuss the importance of training in your pet's life, how clicker training can work for you, and some secrets of the trade. Well, of all people to have with me today, Ken, I'm so excited to have you. You, I don't know if you know this, but you have been just a personal hero of mine for many years, ever since I got into training. And there are many reasons why I feel that way. And part of it goes down to just how you really live out positive reinforcement in your life with being such a kind, patient, just gentle teacher of both animals and people. And you make it a pleasurable learning process, which can sometimes be difficult for the person that's in training as well. And I just, I really admire that about you. And just your creativity is so amazing. I love that you put everything in like practical terms, but also you are so creative. And I love to hear all of your stories about these amazing creatures that you've trained and different adjustments that you made to help them succeed. And so just in so many ways, I am just so honored to have you here with me today. Well, thank you so much, Mikkel. It's very kind of you to say all of those wonderful things. I appreciate that. I, I'm a pleasure to be here. I'm very pleased with uh, all the wonderful things you're doing with Fear Free. Uh, it's such an important mission and, and it's such great work. So uh, right back at you. I'm an admirer of yours as well. Well, thank you. So one, one thing that I, as I was looking up all about you and uh, just, you know, I love hearing all of your stories and I was able to dig into your background a little bit, which was so interesting. And so this is one of my favorite quotes from you. And it says, animals deserve the best care we can possibly provide. Training should not be considered a luxury that is only provided if there is time. It's an essential part of good animal care. Just as one would never consider developing an animal care program without a veterinary component, a nutritional component, a social component, and an environmental component, nobody should consider caring for an animal without a behavioral management component integrated into the program. And I believe that comes directly from your book, uh, which I have actually right here with me, and it's an Animal Training uh, by Ken Ramirez, and it's with you from the Shed Aquarium. And I would love to hear your thoughts on that quote, like where that came from and, and how that's important to you. I think for me, it's a great question. And it is, it, it, is, uh, it is my quote. I have said it. I say it all the time. And part of the thing is that people never would ever think of getting a puppy or a dog or a cat in their home without making sure that they have a veterinarian. Everybody recognizes the importance of health care and, and having a good vet. But it always surprises me that training always seems to be an afterthought. They'll think about it if they've got a new puppy and they need training or if they're interested in competing in agility or something like that, they may look for training. But otherwise, they don't usually think about a trainer unless they have a problem. And that's when when trainers get the call. And I think it's just a sad fact when you look across just this country alone, that somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 million domestic animals are put to sleep every single year, and many are for behavioral issues, and many are behavioral issues that aren't necessarily that serious. They just 
didn't involve a trainer early enough. They didn't think about the fact that a trainer was necessary. And I find that challenge everywhere I go. Often I work with zoological professionals and they think, oh, training is something that they do in the circus. They don't realize that it's training is about good animal care, that animals learn every day of their lives. And by thinking about training, we can make their lives better. We can make their lives in our home better. We can make the lives in the zoo better. Um, there's so much that we can do. And if people thought about training and realized that it's an important part of good animal care, I feel like we would get so much farther and people would be more understanding of the challenges that their pet has or be prepared to deal with those challenges if they recognized how important training is. So for me, I, I say it a lot because I find it to be an obstacle that I run into in so much of the work that I do. It's like, oh, I don't really want to train. But what people don't realize is that even when they don't want to train, they are training. They, their animal learns from them every time you interact with your dog, every, every time you wave to your dog, you say hello to your dog, you pet your dog, you feed your dog. That animal is learning something. And wouldn't it be nice if we had, if we had that understanding so that our interactions were beneficial and were better and would help our animals succeed? I'm sorry, I could talk about it all day. <laughs> so, so speaking to that, can you explain how animals learn? Like how, how are animals con continually learning and being trained by us? It's, it's kind of like well, if you think about a human learner, every time we interact with somebody, our interactions are either positive or negative. We end up having reinforcing interactions or we have aversive interactions. Even simple things like you go to the grocery store and the, the checkout clerk says, hey, thanks for coming. Have a nice day. Or the grocery clerk has something else on his or her mind and they, they go, yeah, $33. And they just charge you and they take your credit card and they're kind of grumpy about it. That's an aversive experience. And so what happens is every one of those interactions either makes going to the grocery store fun or at least enjoyable or at least not an unpleasant experience. Or if you don't enjoy grocery shopping, it's even worse when as you leave, the grocery store clerk is grumpy and, and treats you poorly. So our animals are learning like that all the time. And 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 even when we're not when we're not paying attention, you know, if you uh if you happen to be into music and you 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 play a guitar, you play the drums and you play it loud and Often we enjoy our music loud, but if your pet is in the room and you don't notice that your pet is cowering in the corner, is, 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 is being fearful, what that animal is learning is that in that condition, that's not a pleasant place to be and they become afraid, they become fearful, and they're learning that the only way they have to cope with things is either to run under the bed or to cower in the corner. And those are just, those are real dramatic examples, but Often animals learn from real subtle things that happen, uh, whether we push them away from us because they are looking for attention or we uh, um, don't, we, we push them aside because we're, we're on the computer talking during a meeting and we don't want them bothering us or, or things of that kind. We just think that we're managing the environment and pushing them out of the way. But oftentimes that, that, that animal can be learning bad habits, can be learning things that you don't want them to learn. And so animals are learning all the time and every interaction they have with us, 
ends up being either a reinforcing interaction or a punishing interaction. But most people don't think about that. And so by being very aware of the fact that our interactions help our animals learn learn good habits or bad habits, and we can be conscious of what we're doing, we can end up making sure that they're learning good things, things that we want them to learn, things that are going to benefit their lives. I love that. And I actually remember visiting you at the ranch, which is part of Karen Pryor Academy. And uh, you have some amazing learning experiences there. And I definitely want to want to join in on one of those soon. And But just in my time spent there with you, I noticed in your interactions with your dogs, in your interactions with the donkeys, with the llamas, you are, are continually, I, I just notice how you use your body language in a certain way. You're giving reinforcement in a certain way. And it, it just is, you know, it's very touching to me to see that. And I'm like, gosh, you know, it's, it's just so, so neat as a trainer, because you, it is like you said, where you are aware of how every interaction can impact that, that animal in a certain way. And so can you give me some examples of like during your daily interactions with your animals there at the ranch, like what, what ways you might use your own behavior or different forms of reinforcement to teach or reinforce certain behaviors? Well, sure. Yeah, I think one of the things that happens is, you know, uh, particularly with the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, I frequently worked at home. I frequently had meetings on the computer. And so it was not unusual for me to have my dogs around me. They don't happen to be in this room right now, but often they're here with me and I will frequently reinforce them if they're you know, toss them a treat or toss them their favorite toy if they're lying quietly at their bed because during meetings, I don't have the ability to interact with them as much. And so in the early days of having a lot of meetings at home, maybe I had to do that frequently, but it gets to the point where I can walk in and sit down for a meeting and my dog will just go to go to his bed, curl up and lie down and sit there quietly for the entire meeting. And I'm not having to toss them treats and toys every couple of minutes because they've learned from previous interactions that that's good behavior and that will earn them reinforcement. Um, and uh, that's just a good example of a well-behaved dog that doesn't necessarily need me to, to be giving it a treat every single minute. But but because I did provide treats or provide toys or provide attention for that good behavior of laying in their bed while I was in a meeting, it became more natural and more normal. And sometimes if I'm running late, I can run in here and start a meeting, never having thought about my dog for the moment and look up and see that they're lying there. But it's because in most cases, I am thinking about it and I have previously reinforced them for, for, for being that way or doing that. I also have a dog that was uh, adopted from a shelter and he is fairly reactive. He can be very nervous around people that he doesn't know. So when I know that people are going to be arriving in my uh, driveway, um, I don't. I make sure that he's not in the backyard at that moment. I'll because I know they're coming. I'll bring him into the house, bring him into my bedroom where he is sheltered from their arrival, and then I can introduce my guests to them easily. Um, but I'm thinking about that. I'm aware of the fact that when they drive up, he's going to go crazy, and then every time he goes crazy and barks like that, that's going to become a normal behavior for him, and so. What I'm able to do is by controlling that, I 
bring him into the house. I take care of that in advance. And what I've seen over time is that he's become more comfortable with strangers. And sometimes when I don't know that somebody is driving up, someone will drive up into the driveway and and he's there wagging his tail instead of barking like he used to do because I spent some time in the early days reinforcing him for ignoring that, reinforcing him for coming in. And so what ends up happening with time is I have a much better behaved dog, a dog that gives me the opportunity to focus on a, on a meeting if I need to, a dog that's not challenging the neighbors all the time. But part of it is because I'm always thinking, what is my dog learning in this situation? If I don't want my dog going crazy every time a stranger walks up, let me do some preemptive early training with him so that he's better behaved, he understands expectations, and uh, and then I have a calmer, better life with him because I've introduced him to those things early on. And those are just two examples, you know, uh, but there's lots and lots of them all the time from how I introduce people to my dogs because, you know, I have a dog that's a, a an eager greeter, wants everybody to pet them. And I've learned over time that not everybody who comes into my house is necessarily a dog lover. Most people are, but they don't all necessarily want a dog begging to be picked up or begging to be played with. And so I've taught my dogs good manners so that when strangers walk in, they don't jump on them or don't insist that they get petted immediately. Um, and so that I, again, have a, a better behaved dog that behaves the way I'd like them to in certain situations because I'm always thinking about it. I'm always conscious of the fact that they're learning something. And so I want to make sure that they're learning good habits and not bad habits because that's what ends up happening. Most of the time, we're not thinking about our dogs learning. Something happens and we either ignore them and they just get used to doing that unwanted behavior. They do it over and over and over again. We've never taught them an alternative or something that would be more appropriate for us. And so then we're dealing with that problem every day of our lives as opposed to sort of setting guidelines early on and helping them be successful. I, I love that. And just kind of summarizing what you were talking about. So in one of those cases, you are capturing that that desired behavior. So that reinforcement worthy behavior, that behavior that you want, which so often is missed. And I think that that's like a critical component that is so easily overlooked. It's like almost emergency management. And, you know, it's once we have a crisis, then we're going to respond versus I love with your dogs that you're reinforcing that behavior early on that you want to see more of. I was just going to say that's the challenge you face is that you face that normally because we don't think about it all the time, we are in crisis management. Now we have a dog that barks at the at wrong time or that is interrupting my meetings and, and now you're figuring out how do I get rid of this and it turns out that you sort of inadvertently allowed it to happen and now it's been sort of reinforced although you didn't know it and now you have to work extra hard to get rid of it. Instead, you're being conscious of that right from the start. I love that. And I also love how you were talking about, like, with I believe it's Marlin. Is that right? You're the black lab. My reactive dog. Yes. Yes. I remember meeting him and you had a very specific protocol and I was guided in the way to interact with him. And I think it was during the early days. So uh, but he was he was great. I felt super comfortable and having that structure, I think, is very important for dogs and helping to also reduce that problem behavior where, you, where they aren't rehearsing that behavior that you don't want them to be practicing that 
just like you said, what, what are they actually learning in that moment? A question I have for you on that. So what do you think like, so for a dog that is reactive and they are, are barking, can you explain like how that behavior might increase if it's, if they're allowed to practice that? Well, I think a couple of things happen. One, um, barking is a natural behavior for a dog. And I think one of the things we have to remember is so often a well-behaved dog is not actually natural. You know, the most natural thing for a dog is to bark at, at things that they don't recognize. A natural thing for a dog is to dig up your garden. A natural thing for a dog is to chew your shoes. There's all sorts of things that are very natural behaviors but it's understandable that we don't want them doing many of those behaviors. And so we don't want them to, to exhibit those bad behaviors. And the reality is um, when we don't pay attention and we allow them to practice these unwanted behaviors, because they are natural, they are also reinforcing to the dog. They It feels good. It, it's comfortable for them. And so now that it's occurred and they've learned how to do it, they want to do it more and more. And the more you allow it to happen, the more it becomes a normal part of their everyday life. And then trying to get rid of it becomes more difficult. And that's when after, usually people don't call a, a professional trainer after a couple days of a problem. They call a professional trainer after weeks or months or years of a problem. And then that problem is really ingrained in that animal. And, uh, you know, uh, barking is a, a really good one. You know, they, they see somebody drive up, they bark and bark and bark and bark. Usually what that means is they're uncomfortable with the person and they want the person to leave. The person does eventually leave and go to your door, or goes into your house or whatever. And from the dog's perspective, it worked. The person's gone. And, mm -hmm. and, and so that's reinforcing for the dog. And so the dog goes, I'm always going to bark because that causes those people to leave. And, um, and you know, people don't usually look at it from a dog's perspective. And so they don't, you know, the dog finally stops barking and they think, oh, good, it's not a problem. But what's happening is the dog is learning that barking serves a purpose. And before you know it, they, you've just got a terribly awfully bark, bar, a dog that just barks all the time. And, uh, and that's one of those things that you can manage it. You just have to be thoughtful about it from the very start and give the dog an alternative, give the dog something else that can earn them reinforcement, take the dog away from the fence and bring them to another location. So they don't necessarily see the person driving up. There's, it just depends on the dog and, and the way your home is set up, but there are just so many things that we can do that can set them up for success so that they can have, uh, can exhibit behaviors that we enjoy and we're not always trying to get them to stop doing things. You know, with Marlon, perhaps having him in your bedroom rather than there at the front door and, it, you know, similar, similar concept of, you know, reducing that unwanted behavior, giving him an alternative place to go to. Are, are you giving him other things in there? Like, and is that something you encourage with your clients rather than having their dog right there at the front door, giving them that alternative space? Yeah, I, I, I tend to find that I, I learned a long time. I, I have one dog that's super friendly and loves to meet everybody. And I have another dog that's super reactive. But what I learned a long time ago is that as much as I'm a dog lover and most of my friends are dog lovers, not everybody is. Not everybody wants to be greeted by a dog. So I have a tendency to always put my dogs in another room when someone first arrives. And then I can gauge who they are. Would they be interested in meeting them? Is this a, a, no, a, a, 
uh, an all business salesperson who's just going to be there for a few minutes and leave. And it's better that they not meet my dogs at all. Is this somebody who loves dogs? Is this somebody who's afraid of dogs? And oftentimes, although we who love dogs don't always understand why somebody might be afraid, the worst thing you can do for a person who's afraid of a dog is allow your overly friendly dog to meet them. Because just because you know they're friendly, it, it, it just exacerbates their fear when this dog comes running up to greet them and they have a fear of dogs. Even though it's a friendly dog, it doesn't feel friendly to that person. And so I like to gauge who the person is and whether they enjoy meeting a dog. And if they are a friendly, a dog person who loves dogs, then I bring my friendly dog out to meet them, telling them how to interact with them. And then I later might introduce them to my reactive dog when I can set up the situation so that my dog is comfortable, so that I am making sure that the dog doesn't feel threatened. And I give them rules about how to interact with, uh, with him so that they don't trigger him, so that they don't cause him any strife or grief that might set him off. So I'm always very careful about that. Another thing that you mentioned in your, just your everyday interactions with your pets is, or any of the animals there at the ranch is the actual uh, teaching of different behaviors. So where you're teaching them certain manners, you're teaching them new things. And I remember being there at the ranch with you and watching you do different things that included some husbandry care with some donkeys where you were teaching them to, or helping to uh, continue that behavior of them taking oral medications through a syringe. And that was really cool to see. I loved loved seeing that. And also some of the tricks, you ran through some tricks that Marlon did with like chin rests, uh, which can be a, a cooperative care behavior and also having him lie on his side. And can you explain more about some of the, the husbandry care that you do and like how that is integrated into your normal routines with your animals? Uh, part of the thing is that I do want my, my animals to be really comfortable when the veterinarian comes to visit or when we take the dogs to the veterinarian. And a big part of that is I turn a lot of the veterinary exam procedures into games. Instead of making it this, this is really serious and I'm going to put your chin in my, in my hand so that I can put eardrops in or put eye drops in or do something like that, we just teach the chin rest game as this game that the dog plays that he gets reinforced for, he gets a toy for, it makes it fun for him. And yes, once in a while, some stranger may come up and do something with him. But most of the time, it's a game. And when I play the game, I often have guests come over and come and look at his ears or touch him on the head and do the kinds of things that that a veterinarian might do so that a stranger approaching isn't scary. It is something that we turned into a game that makes it fun. Um, another thing you mentioned was rolling over on the other side is, you know, I teach that as just a game and, and then we rub him down and we tickle him, etc. But it exposes his body, his belly, his feet to being touched. And then the dog becomes very comfortable with that. A lot of animals are not comfortable with someone touching their belly or someone touching their paws. But I just turn it into a game. It's like like a lot of people will play fetch with their dog. I do that with my dog. But another game is roll onto your side. Put your head in my hand. Let me do these medical behaviors that the dog doesn't think of as a medical behavior. It's just another fun game. Oh, this is the put my head in your hand game. This is the roll over on my side game. This is the touch my feet game. And 
we just play games and we interact with the dog. And you find, we find that the dogs and all the animals that I work with look forward to those interactions because they're not thinking of it as a medical exam. They're not thinking of it as some kind of really serious, important work. It's just a game that we play, just like fetch, just like go to your mat, just like all the other types of games that we end up playing with our dogs. A lot of the games that I play happen to have a medical purpose. We just we just don't tell the dogs that. <laughs> so from your perspective, what would be some like core behaviors that you would want an animal to have when it comes to like husbandry care at home or any preparation for medical training? So whether this is a cat, dog, I know that you've worked with lots and lots of exotic animals at Shed Aquarium and, and beyond. I mean, I know it's probably hard and it depends on the species, but do you have some ideas there? Yeah, I have two or three things that are sort of my go-to things. One of the things I do a lot is I like to work with my dogs on an elevated platform. The main reason for that is it's very rare that your dog goes into a veterinary hospital and um, um, is, is just able to stay on the ground. They end up having to step up on a scale or jump up on a table. So I play the platform game so that the animal's elevated and is comfortable with that. I also like to teach all of my dogs to wear a muzzle. I think muzzles sometimes get a bad rap. People assume that, oh, a muzzle means that this must be a dangerous dog or that it's a biting dog. But what I've learned is that often when a veterinarian needs to do a procedure, it can be a scary thing for a dog and and it's easy for them to, to lash out and bite. And so the veterinarian is often going to ask to put a muzzle on the dog anyway. So again, I make it into a game. When I show my muzzle to my dogs, they run up and put their nose in it because it's just a game to them. But then it makes it easier for them to be safe and comfortable around a veterinarian. So those are two of the things that I do all the time is the uh, jumping on a platform, putting on a muzzle. In addition to that, I often will uh, I, te- I teach everybody that works with my dogs that one of my goals is to touch every part of their body at least once a day. That way there isn't a part of their body that they're uncomfortable being touched on because inevitably uh, your dog's going to get a, an injury or going to need some kind of a treatment on a body part that they're not used to being touched. But by having the dogs play the game where we're going to touch the right foot, we're going to touch the left foot, we're going to touch the back feet, we're going to touch the belly, we're going to touch the head, the ears, the eyes, the nose, we're going to touch the tail, we're going to touch the genital area, we're going to touch everything. And and again, it doesn't have to take a lot of time. Literally, every day that I work with my dogs and play with my dogs, I just spend a minute or two touching every part of their body. It just becomes something that we do on a regular basis and the dogs become much more comfortable with being touched with with different things. I also will sometimes bring stuff out. Sometimes I'll touch them with gloves on. Sometimes I'll I'll bring a a spoon out and touch different parts of their body with the spoon. Why a spoon? Well, it's because it's easily available. It's not that a veterinarian is going to use a spoon, but the veterinarian may use something that's made out of metal, something that looks odd. And so I often bring weird things out and bring something made out of plastic. Sometimes it's cold, sometimes it's hot, but the animal gets used to that, gets comfortable with it. It becomes a game. And then they're not so afraid when the veterinarian has to bring out some unique device or some unique tool. So I spend a lot of time doing those kinds of things and it's not difficult. It's not 
super complex training. It's really just playing a game. The dog loves playing games, but then you touch them as you play the game. You put a muzzle on, you jump on a platform, you do these things that from a dog's perspective are lots of fun, but you know they're going to be helpful to you when they visit the veterinarian because you can do that. And 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 quite literally, there are hundreds of things that you can teach. But for me, often with dogs, it is jumping on a platform, putting on a muzzle, let me touch you all over. That right there is a real advantage. Certainly things like going into a kennel, that's really helpful. Being comfortable being in a kennel for a period of time, that's important as well. Um, and then if you have a dog with special needs, if you have a dog that's getting older and he's having having ear trouble or he's having vision trouble or whatever, then it becomes important to start working around the eyes or the ears. Or if you have an animal that needs to take medication on a regular basis, find some food that he really, really enjoys that you can hide the medication in and turn eating little, 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 uh, little packets of food that are, that are, that are like you're where the medication is hidden is something that they're used to doing because you're getting them used to it. You, you were talking about when you visited here, I was getting the donkeys used to medication and they love applesauce. So I would feed them applesauce in a syringe. And then every once in a while, we'll put different flavors in the syringe because when it's time to give them medication, it may taste different, but the donkeys love to drink the applesauce down so we can hide the medication in the applesauce. With the dog, sometimes it's peanut butter, or sometimes it's string cheese, or depending on your animal, you find things that they love so that you get them comfortable with hiding things in it so that when they discover a pill, they're not like going, oh, that's different, and they spit it out. Instead, you find ways of teaching them to accept that with flavors and things that they're comfortable with. So a couple things there. I, I love how you talked about muzzle training. That is so important. And as you said, a lot of times it, it's in the moment when the pet's upset, the muzzle comes out. And so it becomes this negative condition that when I see the muzzle, uh-oh, like I better be worried something bad's going to happen. So I love that you talked about being proactive. And also it's so good because it also helps to reduce the amount of, of physical restraint that's needed. The animal gets more freedom without having to put people at risk, putting the pet themselves at risk uh, because they do bite. So I think that's so important. Yeah, and agree. another question I had for you is when you were talking about being able to touch the animal all over their body and getting them comfortable with that, I remember hearing you talk about the alpacas and how they were pretty shy at first, the animals there at the ranch with you and how you've been working with them on being more comfortable with handling. Can you speak to that and how, how that might help with someone that maybe, you know, certain concepts that might apply to maybe a cat that's sensitive with handling or a dog and how, how you can work up to that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I do find that working with shy and skittish animals is, is sometimes confounding to people. And often you can get a dog from a shelter who, just isn't comfortable being touched or isn't comfortable being pet. And that often is true with certain cats. It's, it's true with a lot of animals. And so one of the things I do is, A, first, I don't want to force the issue. We all want to pet our, pet, our, pet, our, pet our dogs, pet our cats, and there hopefully comes a time when they will like it and look for it and seek it out. We're, most of us are lucky that most of our animals love being touched and love being cuddled, but they don't all. And when you come across an animal that doesn't want to be touched or doesn't trust you, a big part of getting comfortable with them is building their trust. And so oftentimes food is a great way to help build the trust. And, and 
Uh, a dog may not want to take food from your hand at first, but you pour the food into a food bowl and let them eat with you sitting next to them. And then you might put the food bowl in your lap after a while and pour the food in then. And then you may, instead of feeding out of your hand, you may feed out of a cup and they get used to that. And then eventually you can transition to your hand. And with time, you get to a point where they trust you and then they let you touch them. And then they get to a point where they enjoy that touch. But what you have to remember is it's a gradual process. And we have to move at the animal's pace. Not every animal is going to be comfortable immediately. And my alpacas were a great example of that. They came from a a ranch, a meat ranch, where they were harvested for meat. And so their only association with humans was being chased from place to place. If a human's coming, that means they're going to chase me somewhere. And so their interest in being touched was nil. They had no interest. But if you came out today and watched the animals, I can pet them. They're right in my face. They come right over. But that didn't happen overnight. It took me many, many months of building the trust. And then after two or three months of building their trust, they would finally eat out of a cup that I held in my hand. Then another couple of months, they would eat out of my hand. And then a couple of months later, they would let me touch them. Now they're at a point where they let me pet them and do more things with them, but I couldn't rush it. I couldn't say, I need this alpaca to let me pet him in one week or one month. I might not have been able to make it happen in one year because they were really skittish animals and they were older and they had a long history of being afraid of people. Sometimes when you adopt a dog from a shelter, you don't know what that history is. And maybe they, they've they been beaten or maybe they've been in situations where people weren't very trustworthy. And so you have to move at their pace. You have to watch them. And if you see that they're fearful, figure out how far back do I need to be or what do I need to do that's going to make them more comfortable and then gradually build that trust. And as you build that trust, you then can begin to touch them and pet them. But I think we sometimes have to remember that you may always have a dog that doesn't want to be touched in certain places or in certain ways for a variety of reasons. And and we just can't rush it. We just have to be responsive to what the dog shows us and what the, or the cat or the other animal shows us and tells us with their body language. And if they're fearful, slow down. If they're uncertain, they growl, then we need to think, okay, they're not comfortable with this. Let's take a different approach. Let's ease into this And sometimes easing into it may mean taking your time and not rushing to get it done. Absolutely. So a question I have for you is when it comes to positive reinforcement, I was looking through your training and how that is, you know, your training is really rooted around rewards and rooted around positive reinforcement. And what I wanted to ask you is how, how is that an important way for animals to learn and why why really focus on the positive reinforcement over other methods? So I know that's a big question uh, because, you know, maybe some of the, the negatives with some other methods, but I'd love to hear why that has been like really the the force behind the sure. training that you do. I think there's a couple of approaches that I can take to answer. And I will start by saying and explaining that when I started as a trainer, I first was exposed to training, working with guide dogs for the visually impaired. 
And this was when I was in high school. And at that time, the guide dog school used positive reinforcement for some things, but also used punishment. They felt like punishment was necessary to teach discipline, to keep the animal in control. And I understand now that that was just really the, the, the way it had always been done. But as I gained experience and I worked with more and more animals, one of the first things that I learned is that punishment works. You can punish a behavior and it will, the animal will stop doing it. But what also happens when you use punishment is the animals stop trusting you. Animals start getting, become fearful of you. All of a sudden that relationship begins to deteriorate and and you can get away with it sometimes, especially with a, a, a small little dog that you can punish them and they may not retaliate, but they often will be resentful. Often they may not take it out on their owner. They may take it out on somebody else. And so while I saw that punishment worked as a young trainer, I began, when I started working in the zoological field, began seeing positive reinforcement used. And one of the things that you learn really quickly when, when working with a large animal like an elephant, a tiger, a gorilla, and you're in free contact with them, you say no, it could be the last thing you ever say because they could retaliate. And when I began seeing that these big, strong, powerful animals could be trained using positive reinforcement, I realized, oh my goodness, this has got to work with dogs and cats and, and, and domestic animals as well. Meanwhile, not unbeknownst to me, there were pioneers in positive reinforcement training who were starting to do that, but I hadn't been aware of it. And so because I am a trainer who was first trained using punishment methods, I understand them. And I respect and understand why people approach training that way because it can work. But you end up really creating a, a, an atmosphere of distrust. You, you end up getting an animal that becomes fearful. You can create, and, and, and if you don't know how to control your temper when people get angry, when they say no, oftentimes you could actually do physical harm to an animal, which of course, none of us want that to happen. The other thing that I discovered as I became a, a practitioner in the use of positive reinforcement is I realized not only could I accomplish a lot of things, I realized that there were ways of getting rid of unwanted behavior that wasn't focusing on the punishment aspect. Because when you study science, the science will say you reinforce, you reinforce desired behavior, you punish unwanted behavior. And by definition, punishment gets rid of behavior and reinforcement builds behavior. But one of the things and so early on, it's easy for people to think, well, then the only way to deal with unwanted behavior is to punish it. But what I discovered that one of the drawbacks to punishment is if you are being punished because you did something wrong, if nobody's showing you how to do something right, you don't have, you haven't learned an option of what is acceptable. And so uh, what I learned by using positive reinforcement is by teaching an animal that Instead of digging the garden, you can do this. Instead of jumping on a guest, you can go to your mat and get attention. Instead of doing a variety of things, positive reinforcement allowed me to teach an animal skills that allowed them to do appropriate behavior. So often, the reason dogs bark, dig, poop, pee, do things that upset us is because that's what comes natural to them and we haven't taken the time 
to teach them an alternative set of skills, an alternative set of behaviors that is acceptable to us. Positive reinforcement allows us a way to teach them those alternative skills. And once they learn those skills, there isn't a need to use punishment because they are now offering more acceptable behaviors that we want to reinforce. And so positive reinforcement was first, a, 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 there was an ethical reason that I felt better about using it. But then as I became more practiced at using it, I realized that there were practical reasons that, that included building trust, building cooperation, and more importantly, teaching the animals alternatives. I grew up in an environment that was kind of aversive. People always said, no, stop and don't. But the worst thing that can happen if you think about a workplace, when a boss tells you, you did that wrong, but if you don't know how to do it right, it isn't very helpful to just be punished for doing something wrong. Um, and, and what you tend to find is animals usually want to do the right thing. They want to please you. They want to do things that are easy and that, that are correct. You just have to teach them and show them. And punishing that, punishing unwanted behavior just ends up building resentment as opposed to building desired behavior, which is what we want to focus on. So there are a lot of different reasons why I have gravitated to positive reinforcement and become such an advocate of that tool because there's just so many reasons that it works better and it, it has everything to do with teaching appropriate behavior to doing something that is humane to um, building a better relationship with the animals. So for me, there's multiple reasons why I gravitate to the use of positive reinforcement. So a question I have for you, as you were mentioning kind of your childhood and growing up and and the environment you were in, as opposed to kind of where you're at now, how, how has that evolved for you, maybe even with your own self-talk or just the way that you interact with people? Well, it's interesting because one of the things that happened early on when I, I, was, I was thrust into a leadership position very young, and I think that my first foray into leadership, I was not as successful at it, partly because I modeled what I had been shown. I I was quick to say, no, don't do that. Stop doing that. Quit doing that. Um, and then I realized as I became a better positive reinforcement trainer, I realized, my goodness, this is the same with people. People respond to positive reinforcement just like animals do. Um, the only difference is maybe I'm not going to toss my coworker a treat or toss my, toss my coworker a toy, but it's the way I say thank you or the way I show appreciation for something that they've done well or the way I show kindness when they uh, do something that I'm really happy about. And I began seeing that that made a stronger employee. It made a stronger coworker. And and one of the things that's that's amazing to me is I have an adult daughter now and I I, I was very conscious about the fact that I don't want to be a punisher. I don't want to be someone who who spanks my child. I don't want to be someone who yells at my child. I really want to model what I teach. And um, I, I think I think if you had my daughter on, she would say, "Yeah, I don't think my dad ever punished me." But I didn't mean I didn't have expectations. That I didn't set boundaries and set guidelines. But I just found part of that was teaching her what I expected, reinforcing her when she did that, and not 
reverting to punishment when she did something wrong or made a mistake. It was my opportunity to say, gosh, this is a learning opportunity for me. I need to do a better job of helping show her what would be a better alternative to what she just did. And so um, I'm a much different manager, a much different parent. I'm a much different uh, friend and colleague than I might have been 30, 40 years ago when I was first coming into the field because all I knew is what I had been shown. Um, but now I've been able to grow as a trainer and recognize that positive reinforcement works. And it doesn't mean or it doesn't suggest that I, I, I never make a mistake. We are only human. And, and because our society makes it easy for us to say no, stop, quit, don't, those words will come out of my mouth sometimes, but I quickly realize, oh, I want to I want to find, instead of telling someone, don't do this, let me tell them what I'd like them to do instead. Let me show them the path to success as opposed to, to criticize them for doing it the wrong way or for failing. I love that. It makes, makes me think even like my own self-talk cycle, like growing up, like where I used to be really hard on myself and I'd come back from a social situation. I'd be like, God, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. And then I started thinking about it as a trainer later. And I'm like, God, no wonder I get anxiety going into those situations where it's like it, I put so much pressure on myself and it's it's focusing on the negative. And just by like releasing that, consciously choosing to release that, focusing on the good. And it's like, wow, oh, I, you know, this was great here. This was great there. And like just these little things that I could kind of change my own self-talk. It, it really changed my mentality and like helped me to just feel so much more comfortable, empowered, confident. Like, so I've felt that within myself. Have, have you had anything like that with yourself as well? Oh, absolutely. I, I Most people who know me are surprised when they find out that I am an incredibly shy, retiring individual. Yet I get up in front of people, teach classes all the time. That's what we do here at the ranch is teach classes. And I'm in front of a big group of people all the time. And when I tell people that, I I can't speak in front of people. I'm afraid of getting up in front of people. Public speaking is one of my biggest downfalls. People are like, "That's there's no way. You're always up in front of people. And I think that what I did was found ways to take the fear out of the equation. I found ways of making it reinforcing. I found ways of having, you know, finding the joy in it instead of focusing on the fear. And so I was able to, change my own perception and my own reality. And it doesn't mean I don't still run into those fears from time to time. And all it takes is going to one bad situation where it, they're, they're, they're not, they don't think that what you just talked about was the best thing in the world and they frown the entire time or something like that, that all of a sudden it brings you all back all those reasons that you had fear. But I find that those those situations get less and less. And I tend to find myself in situations where I can get easily get motivated to get up and be on a podcast, be on a television program, be in front of the audience uh, and 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 teach like I do on a regular basis, but it ha I had to overcome huge fear uh of being in front of people to do that and um and so hopefully most people don't know that so that they go, well, you do it well now, or at least I do it moderately well now. And so the fact that I was able to overcome that fear, that that being petrified, huddled in a corner going, I can't go out there in front of those people. I, I don't do that anymore. I, I feel much more comfortable about it now. 
That is amazing. That's just so encouraging. And I love that. Like what a, yeah, I, I can feel it. Cause I, I definitely know that within myself as well. So an, another question that I have for you. So when we're talking about like reinforcing yourself, there's a, a type of training called tag teach, which is part of clicker training for people. And if you, do you mind explaining what clicker training is? I think there's lots of misconceptions and like what tag teaching is like, what, what is all of that about? Sure. Well, first let me, let me explain clicker training because, uh, uh, I represent a company called Karen Pryor Clicker Training, and and people assume that means that we use this little toy clicker all the time when we train. And while certainly that is something that we can use, I explain clicker training as just being what we call marker-based positive reinforcement training. Um, the clicker is nothing more than a toy noisemaker, but what it does is it allows you to communicate with your learner. So when you're teaching your dog or teaching any animal, the click translates to good. The click translates to yes. The click translates to getting a reinforcer. And that reinforcer may come in the form of a treat. It may come in the form of an animal's favorite toy. It may come in the form of a good belly rub if that dog loves belly rubs. Um, it's our way of communicating to our learner good job, well done, yes, that was excellent, and then it's followed with some kind of a reinforcer, some kind of a treat, some kind of a thing that they really look forward to. And we use that to help shape behavior, to build behavior, because that's our way of communicating with our dog or communicating with the horse or communicating with the llama. And so people often assume that there's some magic in the clicker, but it isn't the clicker. You can use a word, you can use... A, a, a visual, anything you do, it's it's just a way of letting the animal know that they have done well. And it really facilitates a lot of training. And then uh, Tag Teach International was born and Tag Teach was created by Karen Pryor and uh, Joan Orr and Teresa McKeon. And they developed this organization that helps teach children, teach sporting events. They work with international boating companies because of language barriers to help teach mechanical skills. And what they learned was just like the clicker can perform this communication tool, uh, can he be used as a communication tool with our animals, it could be used with people. And it was first experimented on with teaching gymnasts to be able to do a somersault better or teaching a golfer to use to do a better golf swing. And you actually tell the learner, I'm going to click the moment I see your body do just the right thing. And they'll, they'll, they'll use some special language. It'll say the tag point is hold your arm straight or the tag point is bend at the waist, depending on what the skill is. And so the learner is going, okay, I'm focusing on bending at the waist or I'm focusing on keeping my arm straight. And as soon as the teacher sees that the learner is doing it correctly, they click. And what we've discovered is the animal, I mean the animal, the person recognizes that somehow in their brain they, they recognize that click and it does help them learn the skill faster. Um I am a very clumsy, uncoordinated person, but I had a professional juggler who used to perform for Cirque du Soleil, learn tag teach, and in less than an hour, he had me juggling because he used tag teach to pinpoint when to move my hands at just the right time. Tag Teach International does seminars on boats with on how to 
maintain an engine or how to do a variety of different things. And because there's such a language barrier, they use the clicker to help them learn specific skills. And so it's a really wonderful way to teach things because we all learn better if we're given clear information and really clear instructions. And so tag teach is a, a spinoff of what we do in animal training. And part of the reason it's called tag is that, uh, when some of those early athletes, the young gymnasts, were being taught using a clicker, parents would come in and say, you're teaching my child like you teach a dog? And uh, the teachers would go, oh, no, we are teaching with acoustical guidance. T-A-G, teaching with acoustical guidance, stood for TAG. And as soon as they said that, the parents were like, oh, 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 well, that's okay. <laughs> and uh, But it really <laughs> is a marvelous way to learn because what it does is it's really it helps your subconscious pinpoint when your body is doing exactly the right thing, and it can really help you learn physical skills faster. So there's a science to all of this that really, really works. But in general, it's it's about positive reinforcement and recognizing that when people feel good about something that they're doing, they're going to want to do it more. And that's sort of the simple explanation of why we focus on positive reinforcement. I love that. Definitely. It's, I've seen it myself with my daughter, just, you know, her learning dance moves, for instance, uh, with a, a traditional place where it's kind of, okay, you're not doing that right. Here's what to do. And it's, it is, it was more of that corrective versus actually being able to take that skill, breaking it down, just like you do with animal training and break down into individual pieces. And then you slowly build that, that final behavior. And it's that, that reinforcement, it takes away that fear and that stress, I think, for the learner. Yeah, I, it's funny because I, I had countered a, a coach back in my day. Most of the coaches that I'd had were, were, were quite punitive. But there was a coach that, that I don't think he'd ever heard of tag teach. But what he would do is he'd watch you do something. And when you did it just right, he would go, wow, that was great. But I realized in retrospect that he was timing his wow at the very moment that today we might click. And that wow made a difference. It improved performance amazingly because he was watching the his athletes do things. And when they would get their form just right, this amazing, enthusiastic wow would come out of his mouth. And then he'd say, that was an excellent this, that, or the other. But that wow really was the click. And so it's not the magic isn't in the click, but it's in communicating things that we like that a, that a learner is doing, whether it's a human learner or an animal learner. So for you, what is your greatest piece of advice, like speaking to your younger self or speaking to younger trainers or, or pet parents? Like, what is something that you know now or that you feel now that maybe you didn't have back then that, that you feel like would be something that would be beneficial for people to reflect on? You know, that's an interesting question. And often it depends on on who they are and where I am in teaching them things. And because I, I have lots of different kinds of advice that I give. But when I think back to my younger self, and if I think of what are the top things that I wished I had known when I was younger, one, I wished I had understood the power of positive reinforcement. There's just no question that having seen it work for such a majority of my career but I hadn't been introduced to it early on. And so the power of positivity, the power of reinforcement is something I wish everybody knew about. Um, another thing that I've really learned a lot is to remember to meet your learner where they are. Meaning if 
your child or your dog is afraid, if your dog doesn't know how to do something, you can't expect them to jump to being this perfect model student or this perfect model dog right away. They need to learn the skills and you need to develop them, develop them to get there. So a big part of that is learning to read body language because sometimes our kids, our dogs, they can't tell us, I don't understand. They just show that they're confused. They show fear. And when you are able to read your animal's body language, you're able to be responsive and receptive to that. Um, and finally, I think one of the things that I never realized when I was younger is the importance of patience. You know, be kind, be patient, be aware that animals aren't going to learn everything you want them to know like that. Uh, you've got to approximate them to it and build them up to it. And sometimes we can be impatient as as humans. We are eager to see the perfect the perfectly behaved dog, the perfectly behaved kid. And in our minds, we feel like they should know this. But why should they know it if they haven't been shown it, if they haven't been taught it? And sometimes we just have to be patient. So if I had to narrow it down, I'd say those are my top three things. Use positive reinforcement, uh, learn how to read body language, and be patient. But I could give you a, a seven more if you wanted the top 10, but those are the ones that come to my mind right now. And if you ask me tomorrow, I might give you a different three. <laughs> so lastly, just looking behind you, I see an elephant in the background and you probably know what I'm going to be asking next, but I love the story of you working with elephants and just your conservation efforts and how that has made such a big difference. And I would love to be able to share that if you're open to it with the listeners on how training actually can be life-saving in cases like with the animals that you worked with. Yeah, I, yeah, let, I can share that story. Uh, it's a, it's an ongoing project right now. Um, in Africa, there uh, are is a large group of elephants that um, migrate every year, and it's not unusual that animals migrate. They migrate in search of water, and um, Rather than get into the politics of it, I'm going to leave the countries where this is taking place out of this discussion and just sort of share this story. But the elephants would leave this national park for uh, a northern destination, excuse me, a northern destination. And as they were migrating north, they happened to cross through the border and go across the corner of another country. And this country that they would go through didn't have good poacher protection laws. Um, and every year, 50 to 60 elephants were being slaughtered as they would migrate through the bottom corner of this country. And what's sad is 12 hours later, they'd be out of that country and back in a country with good poacher protection laws. And so there was this 12-hour period of time when they would migrate through there, where as many as 60 elephants died every single year. And a lot of conservation groups tried for more than 30 years to find the poachers alternative forms of work, to find other avenues so that they wouldn't poach, to try to preach the, the, the problems with poaching. And the elephant population just continued to decline. And it got, they were taking more elephants that were born into that population on any given year. And so finally, after many, many years of trying to work with the poachers, try to change the culture in the country where they were poaching, they finally said, well, maybe we need to find another avenue. And I was approached to see if I thought we could teach these elephants 
a, a new migratory route, a route that bypassed this country where they were being killed. And at first, it seemed like a daunting task. You know, how do we teach a wild elephants to change a migratory path that they have used for centuries? And um, and so it seemed to be a bit of a dilemma. But we devised a plan, and we uh, found a way to put man-made watering holes along a new path that bypassed the country. And uh, we put some barriers up to keep them from migrating the direction that they were that they wanted to go, and found reinforcers water was a reinforcer for them and reinforced them along this new path. And a lot of people doubted that we were going to be successful at it. Um, uh, we had a lot of challenges. We had poachers try to stop us. We, uh, it was a pretty harrowing and difficult period of time, but we did succeed. And we managed to reroute 374 elephants uh, down a brand new path that bypassed this country where they were having challenges. And we are now four years, five years into the project, and we've successfully rerouted that herd every single year. And most notably, the biggest thing that has happened is that population had been declining every year for 30 years. That population was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And once we've intervened and ch changed that route, that population has now started to grow. For the first time in 30 years, we're seeing a population who's, who's reproducing and and building uh, the population each and every year. Uh, and now our that population is over 400 animals. And we may see that population go up to 500 animals by the time this project is finished. And so that's just an example of what can be done with a little behavior knowledge. We thought, how can we reinforce these elephants for going a different route? And one of the things that was very helpful is elephants tend to follow a matriarch. So it wasn't like we had to retrain 374 elephants. We mainly worked on retraining the matriarch. And once she would go the new route, most of the other elephants would just naturally follow. And so it's just one example of many of what I call conservation training, where we're able to use our knowledge of behavior, use our knowledge of positive reinforcement to change their behavior in a way that benefited them and benefited the, the the elephants all over the world as we start to see that conservation effort move in a positive direction. So that's that's the short version of what could be a very long story as I talk about uh, conservation training, which of course is really important to me. And the elephants is just one of many projects that I have been working on. And the elephant project is what I'm doing right now. Uh, we're involved in every single year. God, it just makes my heart so happy to hear that and gives me goosebumps. Just so, so inspiring. Well, thank you. So can, how can people find out more about you, more about clicker training and just about the ranch, perhaps? You know, you can find out about all of those things by going to our website, clickertraining.com. At clickertraining.com, that's the Karen Pryor website. Uh, you can find out more about our academy, the Karen Pryor Academy, uh, where we certified trainers as well as have classes for people who want to learn more about training. We have a, web, a, a, a tab there that you can go to the ranch where you can find out about all the classes we offer here at the ranch. I write about um, about a lot of the conservation efforts and things that I do. Uh, if you go to our 
library page, there's all sorts of articles about training, uh, introducing people to training, and a lot of articles that I have written where I can talk, where I talk about conservation work, or I talk about working with police dogs, or working with search and rescue dogs, or working with guide dogs. All of those things are things that you can find on the clickertraining.com website. I definitely am a huge fan of you, huge fan of your work. I follow you and your writings and, and love watching your life from the ranch, which is great. And I myself went through the Karen Pryor Academy. That was a big part of my my training to become a trainer and behavior consultant. So I just say it's such a great program. Can't say enough good about it. So definitely highly recommend. Well, thank you, Mikal. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Ken, for everything and hope to have you back again soon. Happy to be here anytime. Just uh, send me the invite and I'll be here. Thank you for joining us for Happy Paws. We hope you continue tuning in as we explore more about your pets. On the next episode, we have another wonderful guest, Travis Brosen, founder and CEO of Greatest American Dog Trainers and host of Animal Planet's My Big Fat Pet Makeover. Make sure you subscribe to avoid missing out on any upcoming Happy Paws episodes. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you took a minute and left us a review. For more content like this and much more, visit us at fearfreehappyhomes.com. Our music is by 310. That's number three, the word one, and the word O. Follow them on Instagram at 310official and listen to them on Spotify or wherever else you find your music.